This is the Boss Ass Bitch Podcast. I'm your host, Marta Katanichu, just another woman on her journey to bossing up, so I'm taking you along for the ride. I'll be having juicy conversations with women and men who inspire me to boss up and put my money where my mouth is. I trust that they'll do the same for you. So without further ado, get comfortable, make yourself at home, but hold on tight. It's gonna be wild. On this episode of the Boss Ass Bitch Podcast, I'll be speaking to Salma Elwardani, a writer, a poet, a CEO, and a bona fide boss ass bitch. I am so excited for you guys to dive into this conversation. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to the Boss Ass Bitch Podcast. I am here with the one, the only... Salma Elwardani. Hey, oh my hey. gosh. <laughs> I can't believe she's in the studio right now eating a cake pop and drinking tea. Literally, this cake is amazing. <laughs> I've never had one of these before. I didn't think they were so good. Yeah, me neither. I'm excited to try mine too. Mm, it's good. Mm. So everybody, uh, that's a free promo for the cake pop <laughs> yeah. at Starbucks. Starbucks yeah. So go and we'll get, get one. The Salma, pink one. Salma approves. So you the know pink it's good. One, yeah. Not the chocolate one, just the pink one. Yeah, this is a yeah. birthday cake one. You see? They had a bunch of chocolate ones, but thank goodness you told me yesterday you don't like chocolate cake, so... I hate it. This yeah. is amazing. I'm glad I got... I'm really glad that I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> Anything but chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so excited to talk to you and, and quite honored, actually, because you've been my woman crush every day Aww. for the past two years, and you've been Babe. so inspiring to me. Talk to me about woman crush. How about that picture you posted that time? Oh, God. I was like... Oh my god! Uh, I stared at it for like twenty minutes. That picture you posted looking amazing in mm. that like black bodysuit, like oiled up in the yeah. sun. I was like, "Damn!" The one with my butt hanging out. With your butt oh, hanging out, and it was a beautiful butt. I was like, "Girl, you're killing it!" Thank you. I worked hard Thank on you. that butt. Yeah. I need a lot of chicken for that butt. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to eat a lot of protein. I'm just saying. Mm. Um, but thank you. That- that means a lot. That was a great photo shoot. And I encourage everyone to do a naked photo shoot at least <laughs> once in their life. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I remember when we were talking about it. And I was yeah. Like, just do it even if like it's just for you and you just, like that's why you should do it. Just mm-hmm. to stare at those pictures and be like, damn. Exactly. Do you remember that? Um, I don't know if, like, if you watch all of the Sex and the Cities, I don't know who has it. But there's that time when Samantha does a naked photo shoot just because she wants to have, she's like, my body will never be this good. Mm-hmm. It's only going to get down. And she gets older. So she was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to take a picture of myself and frame it naked on the wall just so I can look at it and be like, mm. yes. Yeah. And that's that's what I think everyone should do. I haven't actually seen that episode, but I'm so, that's kind of the reason why I did it too. Right. I was like, I want to celebrate my body. I think there's a time and place for that. Yep. And I do want to be a, a little grandma one day and look, be able to look back and, you know, be like, hey, I was popping once. Yeah, show, <laughs> show your granddaughters, be like, damn, see how I was. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and you're kind of my uh, kind of go-to woman that I like to ask for advice. Like, for example, before I did this naked photo shoot, I was like, Salma, what should I do? I don't, I don't know why I want to do it. And like, because you're sort of an expert in this whole woman and society oh and, God, and modern I don't know I living think, and know, I'm trying to like bumble my way through it as much as as much as the next person I definitely wouldn't call myself an expert on it um I'm just trying to trying to learn things and, and figure it out as we go along and I think we figure it out by talking to each other right like mm-hmm. you know when you you message me and you're like oh I think about this photo shoot I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do why I want to do it and we kind of figure things out as we're going along by having those conversations with one another right yeah 
And I'm curious how you got to this point. Uh, I know that you were born in Egypt and yep. then you kind of grew up in England. Yeah. And you went to school for writing. So I did my undergrad in English literature and then I did my master's in English literature. Yeah. And that's just because I've always been like such a reader. I've, I grew up reading books. Like I used to read nine books a week take them back to the library, get another nine books out because that was the amount of books you could you could get out of our library at that time. And I would read nine books a week, like every week. Wow. Like, and then take them back, get another nine out. And I remember like by the time I was like 10, I'd gone through the entire children's section in our library and I had to start in the teenage section, which wasn't very big. And then by the time I was 12, I was into the adult section because I'd done all the book, teenage books and stuff. And... I think that's where writing, the desire to write comes from because I love stories and I love reading. And I was like, I want to be the person that gives someone this much joy. Mm. So, yeah, so I just was like, I need to do English literature and books and writing, reading, anything I can do around writing and reading. So you had this natural inclination since you were young. Yeah, since I was a kid, just I love stories. And then I just always wanted to read. And I remember like my happiest moments from my childhood are like curled up in the afternoon sun reading all day mm. and I didn't go to school right so I was home educated so I came out of the education system when I was like six and didn't go back into it until the age of 16 and we had a very unconventional education and so I had so much time and we didn't have a tv my mum threw the tv out when we were kids so we're like some weird home ed kids with no tv like and all I had was my books and that was the best the best thing just reading 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 and then I was like oh my god I want to tell stories I want to I want to be able to like give this to somebody else. Hmm. So how did this all start? Because I know you from Instagram. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. I came across your work and I was like, how did you even find me? I don't even know how we like got connected. Or I don't know either. You know what? I think I was following Suli. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I think you showed up as a suggested. Oh, uh, maybe because we yeah, because obviously I know Suli and um, maybe that's how. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, wow, this woman is amazing. (laughs) and then we kind of like chatted from there i think that you're the one who actually reached out to me one time because you liked my uh my bio yeah the, you're oh like, your God, bio's yeah. so funny and i was like no way she did not have yeah. how because that was actually on my personal account too that yeah, wasn't, wasn't on, on my your writing, writing. yeah and, and it didn't what? click until i um until we met for the first time like last year <laughs> that's when it clicked that writing account and i was like shit like <laughs> i was like they're the same people yeah Super weird, right? Because I do have my writing account and I kept it anonymous for a long right. time. Right, it doesn't have your name on it, yeah. Yeah, and I think you found my personal one because I was commenting on your stuff through my writing account and through my personal right. account. So whichever one I was on at the and time. And I was following both of them. <laughs> I was following your writing account and like loved your writing, but I don't think we'd engage much on there. And then I remember seeing you comment on something from your personal <laughs> account and I like clicked on it. Because I always like people comment and I see who they are, what, what, what they're up to, what they yeah. do. Um, and I always try to reply to it every comment that I get um and and I'd looked on your on your page and I'd seen your bio and it was like different pictures of me from like strategic angles yeah and I was like that's so honest like it's just so honest and brilliant that I was like oh my god I fucking love this person like, this is amazing <laughs> and that's when I was like yo yeah hey I 
This is amazing. I felt like I took a risk when I put that bio up. I didn't have a bio up for a long time just because I was like, what? What do you what, am, what is this? Mm-hmm. What is this really? So when I asked myself that question, I'm like, oh, that is what it is. It's just me from strategic angles. It is. But like people like, will be like, oh, this is my life or this is stuff. But you know that all those pictures are very like curated to show yeah. your best angles and to show your best. Because like, no one takes a picture of them from their shit angle and puts it on their Instagram. Mm-hmm. No one does that. And it was just so so brazenly honest and refreshing that I loved it. Mm, thank you. And we connected over something very, like, a mutual value of ours, right. which is, like, honesty and how do we present ourselves mm. on social media in, a, in an authentic way. Right. You talk a lot about that in your work, so I'm wondering where that comes from. Um, I think it probably comes from the fact that I don't have any filters, <laughs> like, <laughs> at all. Like, even when I was growing up as a kid, I was always, like, the bullshit one or the loud one or, like, like my friends would make me do things that they didn't want to. They'd be like, Sammy, you do it, you do it. You know, they were always, like, <laughs> egging me into trouble and I was always getting into trouble. But I was always the kid that would just say anything. Like, I didn't filter my thoughts. I didn't, I didn't try to, ta- like, I don't know, curate what I was saying. I just said it. Um, and so I've always been like that. And so when it came to social, it didn't, to me, I was like, well, why would I, why would I change? It never even occurred to me to, to like tone down what I said or be less honest or less real or just never occurred to me. And then people would say like, oh, you're really like raw or authentic on your, on your socials. And I was like, oh shit, like that didn't, didn't occur to me to do so that. So you didn't know that you were kind of one of a kind or? No, I was just saying things and I was like, cool, like just just say it is that how your instagram started or did you have a preconceived plan for like oh this is gonna be my writing oh my god no my instagram was a total accident the whole thing was a complete accident so i was like if you scroll back through my instagram like far enough you will see the point that it switches and that it changes because when you go really far back and it's like just me or like a picture of me and my nephew like just my life right like my nephew when he was a baby or like me hanging out with my mum and dad or like a picture of cake like do you know what I mean like <laughs> it's just like not curated not beautifully put together just messy life which is what most Instagram accounts are and then I started getting into poetry um and I started writing poetry and I always loved poetry in the sense that I've always liked spoken word and I used to watch spoken word videos and stuff but I never really engaged with traditional even though I studied it from an academic perspective and I've studied you know Eliot and Wordsworth and Shakespeare and I've done all of that from that academic perspective but I never thought of myself as a poet I thought of myself as a blogger or a long-form writer right Mm -hmm. or a novelist or something like that and then it's really really cliched by the way it's it's so cringeworthy but like I basically got my heart broken Mm -hmm. and like I've always written to understand my world or to make sense of my feelings so like if I was angry I would write a blog and put it on my blog or if I was upset I would write a story or or something that would help me process I guess what was going on um and then when I when I was in this like terrible heartbreak it just came out in poetry it was a total accident these words just came out of me and that's the form that they fell in so I was like cool that's that's what it is um and then so I started posting little snippets and I was getting into other insta poets and, and liking what they were doing and then I was doing it really randomly. And one day I'd posted some pictures and then I'd posted three poems by accident. And it came out as three pictures and three poems. Mm-hmm. and Totally by accident. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, that looks good. I like the way that looks. I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> and that's how my Instagram is today. Like, mm. total accident. I have a feeling I remember your Instagram before you had the three pictures mm. and three poem. Uh, it's messy 
AF. <laughs> like you will see it, and it, and you can see distinctly the moment it it changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's how we all start out. We don't really know what we're doing. That's what I did. I mm. also started when I was in the middle of a heartbreak. I was yeah. like, I need an outlet mm-hmm. for all this pain and yeah. suffering. I can't handle this anymore. And so it came out in poetry. And then I I started found, finding all these other people right. on, on Instagram and uh, who have these amazing books out too. Who yeah. write amazing words and do amazing things. Yeah. So um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, total accident. I want to say that it was like really well thought out plan. And it was really strategic, but it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> I can't take any credit for it. It was just an accident. I feel like that's how the best things in life are. It's just like, wait, how did that come out? Yeah, just nowhere. by accident. Yeah, this is true. This is true. So you actually were in Egypt uh, during the Arab Spring. Yes. And you were, <laughs> from what I hear, protesting and, you know, revolutionizing yeah. the world. I know. I'm <laughs> in that a, corner. Just always a rebel. I'm always trying to make trouble. I'm like, if there's a revolution, I'm like, yes, great. Sign me up. I'll, I'll be in this revolution. How long um, were you there for? So I lived in Egypt for two years. Um, and I just finished my, I'd finished my degree and I'd finished my master. So I'd spent four years in the library. And I was a very diligent student. Like, I didn't mess around. I didn't, like, skive lectures. Like, that wasn't me. So I'd spent four years in the library. And I remember thinking, like, I need to get some fresh air (laughs) I need to like see the world before I then go into a career and spend four years in an office right so I moved to I moved back to Cairo so obviously I was born there I've got family there we used to visit in the summers and so I moved back to to Egypt and originally I was working on a farm um in the middle of the desert between Cairo and Alexandria in the middle of nowhere I was working on this farm and this horse ranch and I was like in charge of the animals so I (laughs) You know, I would get up at 4.30 every morning, milk the cow, let the chickens out, feed the sheep, feed the goats, feed the hens, feed the chickens, feed the horses, feed the rabbits, <laughs> groom the horses. And I would like ride a horse and then I would come back and do like some manual labor on the farm, whether it was like making the cheese from the milk or whether it was making yogurt, whether it was like sterilizing one of the barns, like building a roof like whatever and then I would like ride one of the horses again to give them more exercise and then we'd do it all again and put everyone in feed everyone milk the cow put it put everyone to bed for the night and that was my life for like five months what a strange turn of events I know (laughs) just finished my master's I'm gonna go work on a farm now yeah I'm gonna go be a farmer okay (laughs) cool (laughs) I know I look back on it and I'm like honestly it was the hardest job I've ever had in my life Mm. like you can't take a day off because the animal's they, they still need to be fed. The cow still needs to be milked, right? <laughs> like, it's crazy to me that I milk the cow twice a day, every day for five months. Like, mm. it's crazy that I can even say, like, I know how to milk a cow right. and then make cheese from the milk. And so everything we produced on the farm, we ate. So it was fully sustainable. So the farm, we had banana trees, we had fig trees, we had date trees, we grew onions, cauliflower, potatoes, garlic, you know. And if we wanted chicken for dinner, we would go and I would kill a chicken, pluck it, gut it, cook it. So I've taken, like, I've gone outside, got a chicken, and then, like, slaughtered it. You've killed your, yeah. You've killed a chicken with your bare with hands. With my bare before. hands, with a knife, you just slit its throat, let it chop its head off. How hard is it? Is it harder than, than no. it seems? No, the knives are very sharp. It slices through oh, like butter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then the, the chicken runs away, runs around headless oh while it's no. like nerves are like that. This is not good for vegetarians, by the way. <laughs> if anyone's a vegetarian, <laughs> don't listen. Trigger warning. Um, Skip 15 seconds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and like with sheep as well at the time when we needed to get, get you sheep. You killed sheep Yeah, as well? just like slit its throat. You've killed a sheep Yeah. Before. 
on your own? I feel like that's no, like a someone well, one of that one of the farm hands would like hold it down, and I like got the knife Goodness. and like slit his throat. Um, <laughs> and then we like to take the meat and cook it. And yeah, so like when I have this argument with vegetarians, and they're like, "Would you kill your own meat?" And I was like, "It's cool. I mean, yes, <laughs> I would. I've done it. Like it's fine." Um, so I did this for like five months working on a farm. And I love horse riding, so I wanted to ride. So and every day I was like galloping in the desert and stuff. So and that was amazing. Um, horses are crazy though. Like I hate horses. Um, I, I had a lot of injuries falling off those horses, but it was good fun. It was amazing. And then I was like, okay. So after five months, I was like, I'm ready for the city life. Like I've done this. It's cool. Like I've had my farmer farmer life. Like I'm ready to move to the city. And then. Um, I moved to the city on the 24th of January, 2011, which every Egyptian will know is significant because, and it was Thursday night. I moved to the city on Thursday night. And the next day was Friday, the 25th of January, 2011, which was the day of the revolution. And that's when it all kicked off. So I moved to the city being like, I'm going to get a job in like international business and whatever. And then the revolution hit and Everything shut down. We were under curfew. Curfew was like three in the afternoon. Like we had from like the morning till three in the afternoon to go out and do shopping. The, the the shelves were bare. Like we were fighting for like basic stuff. Like you were avoiding bullets around the neighborhood. Like and it was crazy. So the city like shut down. So no one's getting any job, right? And um and I remember like I had a few friends, like expat friends who were from like England or America, and all of their parents were calling them and and saying like oh my God, come home. And the embassies were recalling all of their people, putting flights on to take everyone home. And my mum called me and she said, Salma, get down in the street and fight for your country. <laughs> I was like, cool, ma, okay. <laughs> I thought she was going to be like, come home. Wow. She was like, go, go in the street and fight for your country. I was like, cool, yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, so I did, and did a lot of protesting, a lot of political blogging, um, and it was incredible. Like, it was an amazing time to be there. Like, how many people can say, like, I've been part of a revolution and for your own country as well. You know, we were like fighting for like the freedom of Egypt and stuff. And it was, it was an insane period to be there. And it was incredible. And I've never experienced unity like that in humanity, seeing humanity come together regardless of, of social class or status was just phenomenal. Like, it was a really beautiful period. And I mean, it didn't last and everything's a bit messed up after that. And, you know, there's lots of debate about was it a revolution or was it a coup? Like, whatever. But it was a really, really beautiful time in mm. history. So it was amazing to be there for that. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm curious how that experience has shaped your work now or the things you believe in now or kind of the things that you fight for with your work now. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's like cemented the idea of me as a freedom fighter. As of me as being standing up and fighting for what's right and when you've done it in a revolution for a country you know you're like yes okay I can do this you know I've I've been an activist on the streets against tanks you know and I've got caught out on curfew by the military and mm -hmm. just managed to get home in time and you know you, you kind of see what you're capable of and you see what you'll stand up and fight for right and I've always kind of considered myself a bit of a revolutionary and a rebel. And like my mum is a total socialist, right? And we're all very like a socialist in our family. And it's not about like getting loads of wealth and keeping it to yourself. It's about how do you make a better society around you and how do you help your community and how do you distribute wealth so the divide isn't so big and all of this. And so I've always kind of grown up with that mentality. Um, and my mum's like 
much to the horror of every American that I talk to when I say this, but like my mum is such a socialist in that like she loved like Castro and Che Guevara and thought that they were like on the right mission and she was like amazing. And I remember when I was living in, in Cuba, I would, um, in Miami, I would say that to any of the Cubans and they'd be like, oh, terrible. And I was like, okay, cool. Don't mention that <laughs> then. Um, so I've always kind of been that kind of revolutionary socialist and then being in the in the revolution in Cairo was just such an enlightening experience and it made me go, oh my God, you can do this. You can fight. You can stand up and you can get to the streets and together we can make a difference. And there, there's been so many changes in Cairo since then, but change did happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like I remember the night President Mubarak stepped down and that's what everyone was fighting for. And the whole city turned into this street party. Everyone was like, we did it. Like, we took to the streets and we protested and now we've got what we wanted. And it was such a enlightening moment. Mm. And it made me think, you can fight for what's right. You 100% can stand up for what's right. So when I'm fighting for women's rights and or changing the narrative of Muslims in the West and stuff, I'm like, yeah, I've, I've fought in revolutions. Like, we can do this. And I, I know change can happen. Yeah. That sounds like a super empower, empowering experience mm. because you you basically saw change happening right. right before your eyes. Right. And I feel like sometimes we choose not to speak up or we mm. choose not to stand up for what we know is right in our hearts because we have this kind of hopeless mind mentality that's like, well, what's really going to change if right. I, what's one voice? Yeah. And, when everyone else is going against it. Exactly. And then I, I remember just seeing like the Million Man March in Cairo being like, shit look what we did Mm. if we all stand up and say something we can change government we can change the course of history Mm. so that is always kind of at the back of my mind like when I'm fighting for and fighting for women's rights feels a lot like a hopeless hopeless task at times (laughs) doesn't it oh my god you're like I've messaged you a couple of times yeah how do you do it I don't understand like I try to dip my toes in the water a few times and I'm like it's it's filled with sharks it is there are so many sharks and it's like once you fight and you fight some more, you realize there's more shit beneath mm, it and then there's yes. more and there's more. And it's, there's so many layers. Yeah, once you start diving in, you can see it all. And you're yeah. like, oh my God, this is worse than I thought it was. Yeah, but That's the thing, which what, what you told me one time really stuck with me, which was once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm-mm. Once you have that experience as a woman where you see really who you can be in mm. this world and all the forces that are against you still. Yeah. Even, even through all the change that's happened even in the last hundred hundreds of years. Mm. Like, we still have a long way to go. So long. We have such a long way to go. And yeah, you're right. Like, once you see it, that's it. There's no going back. Mm. You can't unsee what you've seen. <laughs> and you can't... And once you've seen it, once you've witnessed oppression and the patriarchy coming down on you and you've seen it for what it is, you're like, oh, shit, my eyes are open and now I can't go back. Was there a defining moment for you that made you see it? very clearly or was it like a couple of moments that just added up and then you were like hmm Mm. um I think I there was uh, yeah no I I definitely remember the transition or the shift when I was like more aware and more engaged in women's rights okay because I'd love to be like I've been like this my whole life (laughs) I haven't it was a journey right born a feminist yeah exactly (laughs) and it's so funny and to some extent I was and I am very lucky and I've had my mother who is like this ardent feminist, right? And she raised me like at the age of 10, she's giving me like Virginia Woolf and Mary Wollstonecraft. And mm. she's she's giving me that feminist narrative from such a young age, right? And 
her narrative informs it as well. So I remember like we'd be out or we'd be in our, in our Muslim community and things would happen, right? And I would just be like, oh, cool. This guy is just being nice, right? Mm. And my mom's like, no, Salma, he's not being nice. He's trying to put me in my place. Mm. And he's, he, this is the, she'd be like, this, like cussing out. And she'd be like, this is the patriarchy and like their fucking male ego and stuff, right? And I'd be like, no, sure. And I used to think, oh, she's over-exaggerating. It's not his ego. Like, he was just being nice. <laughs> and really, there's so many layers and, and stuff happening underneath the surface. And my mum was absolutely right. They're trying to keep her in a certain position in society. And, um, and so I didn't really, like, I was aware of it. I was always kind of having this narrative as a backdrop to my youth. And when I was really confronted with it was when I started working in the corporate world. So I was two years in Egypt and then I came back and I, and I got a job in London in like a global PLC corporation. And it was like in the heart of London. Like this is sharky corporate, like Wall Street style thing, right? And when you're working in, in, in that world, which is white male dominated, you are suddenly made aware of your gender and your ethnicity in a way you have never been made aware of it before. And suddenly it was a problem that I was a woman. And suddenly it was a problem that I was a woman of colour. And suddenly I wasn't getting what I should have been getting, whether it was in pay or in opportunities or a seat at the table. My voice wasn't being heard. And I remember talking and thinking, like, no one's listening or like being in a room full of white men and saying something and no one really paying attention to it and then someone else saying the exact same thing, a white guy, and everyone being like, oh, brilliant. And I'd be like, I just fucking said that. Mm. Like that just came out of my mouth. And you're, you're, so, you're, you're made to be aware of your gender in ways that you never have before. And the corporate world is where we play out gender roles to a hyper extent, more than we do in normal world, right? You're like men open doors for you and they're excessive about it in ways that they're not when they're out with their mates right and and you're just made to feel aware of it so I remember starting in corporate and being so aware of like my femininity my womanhood my ethnicity um and the fact that I was an African woman and that was a fucking problem right and that's when I became more and more engaged in it and and you know things happened to, to get you to that point and before that I had been in a relationship with someone with an you know an, an Arab guy who was you know British born and born and bred but he was Egyptian as well and it was a horribly abusive relationship and I was in the end of that relationship as I entered the corporate world and then I'm suddenly trying to figure out what being a woman means in this relationship and what kind of woman I am to this man and how that's playing out and obviously it's it's not going well because it's abusive and and I'm kind of thinking why like I was raised on feminism why am I letting this man do these things to mm. me right and you're you're so aware of it and then you're in corporate and you're so aware of it and yeah and I think as you get get older and older it it like slaps you in the face more so you can't ignore it mm. That's an interesting thing you said that you're like, how am I in this situation, even though I have all this knowledge? Right. Have you figured out what the reason is behind why we do certain things when we know better in oh a way? Oh, God. I mean, if I figure that out, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> um, <laughs> the minute I do, I'll write a book and everyone can buy it. Um, it's funny because there's just so many factors, right? And I used to remember like thinking about abusive relationships, thinking like, how would anyone let themselves get into that? Because the minute X happens, you leave, right? right? And it's so black and white in your head until you're in it. And sometimes you get in it and you don't even realize how you got there. Mm. And it happens quicker than you can can imagine. And you're like, shit, 
that happened real quick and I don't know how, okay? And there's there's so many different factors that, that contribute to it. And a lot of it, I think, is the roles that as women we are required to play or that the roles society has taught us to play, right? And we're trying to be everything to these men mm. and, we're, and we give so much of ourselves. So when you have given so much of yourself to a man, you're not leaving anything for you. So you can slip into his patterns of behavior real quick, right? And I was so busy trying to be this like incredible, you know, woman for this guy that I totally forgot how to be myself. Like I just lost myself utterly and completely because I'm giving so much every day to this man. And I, you know, society doesn't tell you that that's not good. Society doesn't tell you, no, don't give that much to that man. Keep some of it for yourself. Society tells you, give everything. Mm -hmm. And then, and once you've given given everything, give more. <laughs> exactly, give a little bit more. Do extra. Like yeah. you have to be this sex goddess, but also this virgin who's chaste, and you have to keep your body in these amazing standards. But you have to eat pizza with him on the sofa as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and it's like that. Di I don't know if you ever saw the film Gone Girl, but it's that struggle that she has with it of having to be all these different things that are so contradictory. Like I cannot be a size six and eat pizza with you every night. I just cannot. My body doesn't work like that. Like, I have African genes. This ass is going to blow at some point, okay? And these hips are going to get wider and wider. Um, and so there's all these contradictions of what we're supposed to be. And that that can drive you crazy. Like, in Gone Girl, when she goes crazy and she, like, kills that guy, I understood it 100%. <laughs> there was no part of me that was like, this is really wrong. She's done a bad thing. I was like, girl, I get it. I was like, yeah, I've all been there. Yeah, I was like, I understand so much. So we're trying to be all these contradictory things. And then at the same time, there is so much shame associated with women. So when I was in this abusive relationship, I was so embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't dare say anything to anyone. I didn't want to tell my friends what was going on because it was like embarrassing. Like, how have you how have you let it come to this? Right. And like all my strong, empowered female friends would be like, what are you doing? Right. There was just this idea. And shame is so intrinsic to womanhood. Like in this world, shame is a woman's game. Right. Men don't feel shame right? We're taught to be ashamed of our like sexual desires or our sexual relationships or the things that we do. Or, you know, if you're, if you're going to have kids and then leave them at home with the dad, like shame on you for not being the mother that was there for them, right? It's just, mm. and shame is debilitating. You can't move in shame. You can't breathe in shame. And when we are put under so much scrutiny and so much shame, of course you're going to get into bad behaviours. Like, it makes total sense. And if there wasn't so much shame surrounded with these topics, maybe I would have been able to tell a female friend, actually, I think this relationship's going a bit wrong. And then maybe I would have gotten out of it earlier. And maybe I would have had the strength to leave, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a lot of the reasons. So you found the strength to get out of the relationship eventually I'm was not that all on your own no I'm not even gonna front I didn't leave he left me <laughs> I am 100% I'm not gonna mm. it, yeah I'd love to have that narrative that oh my god I was so empowered and I finally came to my senses and I left no I didn't at all like I was in this and I knew it wasn't right but I was scared and unsure and I just kept going along with it And, you know, there was, there's another narrative going on in the back of my head from, like, my Muslim community that was like, you have to be with a Muslim guy. And he was he was the perfect Muslim guy on paper. So I'm going along with this because I've got this, this, this historic narrative saying this is what I should be going for. So you're just going for it. And then there was a time where he was like, 
I'm going to go away to Egypt for a month and uh, we're not going to talk. And when I get back, we're going to decide if we should be together. And this is out of nowhere. And I was like, like looking around, like, am I being punked right now? <laughs> and, um, and he, so he goes away. To, he goes away for a month and there's no contact between us. And this is like my man of like nearly three years, right? We're supposed to be getting engaged, getting married. Like he's met my parents. He's stayed over in our house. And he just disappears for a month. Ghosts, right? Mm. And um, and that was the first time I remember thinking something's not right. And it was the first time I had the strength to tell someone. And I told one of my best friends who I hadn't talked to for years because he was a male. And my boyfriend had said, you can't talk to him. Mm. Very controlling, very possessive. And I hadn't talked to him for like two years. And, you know, God bless him. I will always love him eternally for this. Like I picked up the phone to him after two years and he was the first person I could tell. Not even the people closest to me that I talked to every day. I couldn't tell. And I said, this is what's going on. And like, love him. I love him for this. I love him for this. He just didn't even question that we hadn't talked for two years. He wasn't even like, you cut me off. Like he wasn't mad about it. And I had cut him off and he, and I told him I was cutting him off and he wasn't mad about it. He was just like, listen, if I said that to my girlfriend, I would have been gone a long time ago. He, he just made me see that it like it wasn't right. Um, so I knew things had to change, but I wasn't quite sure what, but I wasn't ready to be like, I'm going to leave. I knew maybe I could just finally have a conversation with him about the way things were. So he comes back after a month and he looks me in the eye and he says, Salma, I don't love you and I don't want to be with you anymore. Just like that. Hmm. after like a month of no contact and me being like and I remember thinking like like being punched in the face mm. and I was like after everything I turned myself inside and out for you I made myself a different woman for you I changed the way I dress for you I changed my friendship circle for you I changed my values for you I changed who I was for you and you're still gonna turn around and tell me that you don't want to be with me. And that was such a jarring moment, like so jarring, which made me, and that was the one thing that made me realize you can't change for anybody because they'll leave anyway. Mm-hmm. You couldn't change yourself that much and they'll still leave you, right? So we had, so this is what he says to me and then he walks out the door and I never see him ever again. And I find out from a mutual friend, four months later, he's married. Hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. So that's what you were doing for like a month in Egypt and all this other time when you weren't really talking to me. And I was wondering like, why are you on your phone, but you're not messaging me? And and that's what's going on. Cool. Um, but yeah, like I didn't, I didn't leave. Like he left me and thank God he did. <laughs> and I like, yeah, I'd like to think that, you know, somewhere along the way I would have, I would have left. But there is also a big part of me that goes, oh my God, thank God. God, I didn't. Because if he had said to me, let's get married tomorrow and have kids, I probably would have said yes. Mm-hmm. And I just think, ugh, I dodged a bullet. Like, yeah. And, you know, and now I've learned the lessons that I needed to learn so that if someone did come to me and I got myself into a similar situation, yes, I would have. I would leave in a heartbeat. Like, we wouldn't even get into that situation. Like, if a man said to me, can you cover up a bit? And we had just started dating, I would be like, okay, bye. Mm-hmm. that's a warning sign for me that's a massive warning sign for me which I, and I think I put something on my Instagram recently like if a man starts to tell you to dress differently just close the door mm-hmm. boy bye 
Like, yeah. I'm not going to entertain that because that's a warning sign. That's a troubling mentality. Mm. Why are you thinking like that? What's that going to lead to when you get more comfortable with me? How is this going to go? So now, yes, but I didn't I didn't have that knowledge at the time. Yeah. and I didn't have those experiences. That's what I love about you because you're so aware of these little trigger points mm. that we sometimes tend to look over. Right. And you don't think much of it until you are like in the deep end and you're like, right. okay, what am I doing here? And and whether like, it's in a relationship or a work mm. type of situation, anywhere i feel like your work and and what you speak about really makes me and another woman and men too i think more mm. aware of how we show up and, and what to look for in our relationships right. to make sure that we feel good and we feel right and we're respected and treated right exactly and i and i kind of wish and that's because there's not that much narrative or dialogue around mm -hmm. it and i kind of wish someone had said to me years ago if a man starts asking you to change the way you dress he's probably not someone you should be with Because that's a really troubling mentality, right? And if a man starts asking you, how many men have you slept with? That's a really troubling mentality because it shows his ideas, right? Mm. And I'm not, and if, if you can talk to him and change, you know, those, those dialogues, then, then great. But if not, that's, don't entertain it past these points because you will look up and be two and a half years into a relationship and it's abusive and you didn't know how you got there. Right. And by then you're just so beat from everything that you're giving that you exactly. you end up having no strength to yep. get out or to build yourself up again. Yeah, and two and a half years have gone. Yeah. So how I'm curious, how long did it take for you to build yourself up after this jarring experience? Uh, how long um, did it take for the lesson to to kind of? Um, it's. I mean, I think we're still doing it. <laughs> Still built, still building. I mean, I've seen some of your poetry. I'm like, someone, who are you talking about? Who yeah. Do I need, who do I need to beat up? Is this yeah. someone recent? Do you know what? It's so funny. <laughs> People say that about my poetry. But none of my poetry is about him. Mm. Not a single one. This was another fuckboy. Oh, okay. <laughs> this was another the fuckboy that came after. Oh, it's not even about him. <laughs> and I think there's some part of me that's like, oh, my God, if I opened up to write about poetry in terms of like that abusive relationship, I think, oh, it's so dark. Like, mm. I, like it, it, would, it would get very heavy real quick. Um, but it's so it's funny so for like I remember like after this relationship and I've been single for a really long time like I haven't been with someone like since him right like in a proper healthy committed relationship where we meet each other's families and we go this is my boyfriend and this is my girlfriend like I haven't had that I've been in a situationship mm. which is very different right but you know and I so for like three years after this relationship ended and and he walked out of my life I was in such a bad space like just in such a dark fragile broken space and and it was never ever like I want him back or ever he left and, I, and it was like being able to breathe mm. but so much of it was anger at myself and resentment at myself and I couldn't forgive myself for letting myself get into that situation and I kept looking back and thinking how did you let yourself get there how did you of all people you who have a feminist mother like that who who screams freedom for women at every chance she gets you who, who who was fed feminism as a child how did you of all people end up in that space so I just couldn't forgive myself for it and it was really hard um but it I think part of the and the lessons are still happening and they still come and you're still learning you're constantly learning and growing from it But it, it was a huge, huge learning curve for me. And I remember when he looked me in the eye and he said, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be with you. And that rings in my head. That rings over and over in my head. I never forget that moment. 
And in that moment when he said that, there was like something shifted in my brain that just went, you can never change for anyone ever again. Mm. And that's why I'm probably fiercely sensitive about who I am and holding on to who I am. And if, if men have come you know, in, after that and they've said things and I, I might get extra touchy about it because I'm like, you're not going to change me. Like, no, <laughs> I've been there. I've done that. I'm, I'm not doing it again. So some of the lessons happen straight away. Some of them are still happening. Um, I think it's just like a constant, constant growth. Yeah. That's what I found in my personal life, that healing does take time. Oh my and God. sometimes lessons take a long time to sink in. It's not mm. like it gets thrown in your face and the next day you wake up and like, oh, I get it. Right, exactly. And I can go through all of that and then still give too much of myself to someone. <laughs> right. You know? And then you learn the lesson again. Again, like in a yeah. Way or in a, mm. You learn it's it as many times as you need to. Yeah. Yeah, you do. But there's no like cutoff point and it's not like oh you're in a relationship for this amount of time so that it means you can be sad for this amount of time mm -hmm. like sometimes the sadness will just randomly hit you five years down the line yeah. you know like there's no time on it yeah that's one of the things that i love about your work because you remind us to take the time to be sad and to feel mm. our negative emotions because there's power and there's meaning in that as well yeah and those those sad heavy tired emotions like they will teach you more than when you're happy and on top of the world mm -hmm. like always I've yeah. always learned more from the sadness and the failure than I ever have from the success and the happiness. Same. Mm. So after this relationship, is that when you started questioning your work life? Um, no, that, so that happened like a year. Wow, when did that happen? So I was like in corporate and I was like playing the corporate game, power dressing, like mm -hmm. loving it. And then I remember like being like two years into corporate and feeling like my soul had, had disappeared somewhere along the way and feeling like, oh shit, something's gone wrong here. Um, but you still go at it, don't you? Because you're like, oh, I need to make money. I've got bills paying, I'll pay rent. Um, but it was only like a year and a half ago when I started my own business that I managed to, to break free and mm. think this isn't how I want to live my life. Um, and you know a series of events happened to get me to that point um, but no like after this guy like after that relationship finished oh my god I went heavy corporate <laughs> I was like well fuck you I'm gonna be the best like business woman I'm gonna rise and be on the board and be CEO and I'm gonna do all of that you know like some kind of, and like you you channel everything into like I'm not channeling myself into a relationship anymore so let me channel it into mm -hmm. my work right yeah and you also talk a lot about self-care. Mm. Is this something that you've recently gotten into or was it um, a journey? To I get to No, it's point? definitely a journey. No one wakes up just being able to be like full of self-care. <laughs> like no one does. Like I wish, I wish. If anyone has, please call me. <laughs> Tell me how you did it. Um, <laughs> I think it's definitely a journey. And that's because society teaches us not to self-care. Right. We're in a system of living that tells us don't look after yourself. So it's, it's, it's really fucking hard to like break that and change your mindset to think I need to look after myself. Um, and I've always been good at doing like little acts of self-care. And, and for me, that's stuff like, you know, getting a cup of tea and a slice of cake and reading my favorite book all afternoon like for me that's such a self-care thing or like taking long long bubble baths with mm. candles that's that's a self-care thing for me um but I've definitely learned more and more as I've got older to be more diligent about my self-care and to be bigger about my self-care like it doesn't my self-care now isn't necessarily just reading my favorite book like yeah those little acts are still there but my self-care is 
cutting negative people out of my life, right? Mm. Or not maintaining friendships just for historical reasons because they're not affecting you in a positive way, right? Mm -hmm. Or my self-care is speaking up about something that's making me uncomfortable and saying, actually, I don't I, this situation or what you're saying is making me uncomfortable, please stop. That's self-care, right? Or, you know, taking myself on holiday or traveling around the world. Like, that's that's self-care for me. So it, I think it, it changes and evolves as you get older. Um, and you, I guess you have the means to do different things. When I was younger, I couldn't take myself on holiday, you know? And it does it does change and it is a journey. But it's it's trying to just be always conscious of it. And self-care is as well like going to the gym, mm -hmm. right? Like that's making sure your body's like healthy. And I'm not saying do it for to look any kind of way, but right. do it so that you're fit and healthy. Whether that's gym, a dance class, swimming class, like whatever, mm -hmm. walking instead of driving, like those little things are self-care as well. Yeah. I realize that as well, that self-care looks different for everybody mm. on different days, on different weeks of the year. Absolutely. Months. So it's really good to just always keep in mind. Right. That we need to put ourselves first. And that's why I love your, your Instagram as well, because you're always sharing how you're taking yourself out on dates. Like <laughs> yeah, I'm taking myself for dinner tonight. You're traveling to these amazing places and meeting awesome people from all over the world. So it's so inspiring because you're taking the steps to do that. And it's like right. seeing you do that, I think, makes a lot of people feel like they can do it, too. I hope so. Like, I really want because I like growing up. I didn't see that. I didn't see any, you know, woman by herself, alone, not married, single, traveling the world and just having a great time. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. see that. And I was like, I wish I had had seen that. And, you know, I had my mother who was amazing, who kind of raised me to be like, there's nothing you can't do. Like, if you want to do it, go do it. And my mum, so it's so funny. So she used to like go to the cinema by herself a lot. And like she'd leave me and my brother at home with my dad and she'd go to the cinema. Like she could have got a babysitter and gone with my dad. Her husband <laughs> right but she was like she loves going to the cinema by herself she loves that yeah. experience yeah and she would just go off and be like i'm going to the cinema tonight by myself and that's like that was her self-care mm -hmm. right her taking time away from being a wife and a mother and and just going to the cinema right. by herself and i go to the cinema by myself and i love going to the cinema by myself but i'm like if i hadn't grown up seeing my mum and this is a tiny thing, but I talk to women all the time who are like, oh my God, I'd never go to the cinema by myself. Never. And I'm like, but why wouldn't you? And I grew up seeing my mum do it, so it was normal. So when mm -hmm. I do it, it's normal, right? Yeah. And it's tiny things like that. So I hope that in showing what I'm doing, it can, you know, give people courage or strength to just go off and do it by themselves. Because I hate the idea that we have to like wait for a man or you have to be on your honeymoon to go and stay in a nice hotel or mm -hmm. you need to have an occasion like on an anniversary to go on date night. Like, no, <laughs> you are the best person you will ever be with. So you better love yourself because you're with yourself for the rest of your life. You're not getting... Like, you can get another boyfriend, you can get another husband. They're, you can get them anywhere. They're everywhere. You can't get another you. You're not getting another you. That's all you've got, so you better fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. The most serious relationship we have is with ourselves. And I think we, we tend to forget that. Yeah, it's easy all the time. to get distracted. Yeah, because people are like, you're being selfish. Mm, no. So, oh, I hate that word right? so much. I'm like, no, I'm not. It's almost like a compliment for me now. Yeah, like, like, selfish, good. Yeah, you know, cool. It's, it's taken me a long time to get here. Exactly, and I don't owe you shit. I don't need to give you everything. No, <laughs> be selfish. Yeah. Hashtag be selfish. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. My new motto. Oh, you want water? No, it's my new motto. Oh, <laughs> my new motto is like hashtag be selfish. I'm gonna. I might just put that at the end of my post. Hashtag I love be that. selfish. <laughs> I'm gonna write about be selfish. Mm-hmm. 
I would love to hear hear your perspective on that. So, you spend most of your days dismantling the patriarchy. <laughs> dismantling the patriarchy and eating cake. Yeah. It's between the two. <laughs> and drinking tea in, in the meantime as well. Yeah. I'm curious if you have any sort of suggestions or advice for men and what men can okay. do to show up for women mm. and to join the fight. Right, yeah, and that's such an interesting question, and especially um, in light of everything going on with the Me Too movement, mm. and, and oh my God, it's so funny, so I was having this conversation with a guy recently, like the other day, and he was like, I'm on your side, I want to fight for women, like yeah. I want to be, but I don't know what to do, and I don't know where the b- boundaries mm. are, and every time I try to question it, I get slated by all these women who are like, Rah! right, and like, and with the Me Too movement and the Ansari article that came out, I've had this conversation with a lot of men who were like, I understand his perspective and there's times where I've been on a date and maybe I put a, a toe out of line and maybe she thinks it was harassment now and, you know, and, and they're scared. Mm-hmm. Right now, men are scared. They're scared of what they're allowed to say, what they're allowed to do. And, you know, a lot of men are calling it a witch hunt, right? Mm-hmm. Which it is not. But, but that's all coming from fear, Right? Because men are afraid right now. Which is a good place to have them. Yes. Be scared. In a corner. No, be scared. (laughs) Because you don't change when you're comfortable. Be uncomfortable and scared so that we can bring across some kind of change. Because we've been terrified for centuries. Okay? We've been scared of men for centuries. And we still are. Okay? Um, And so I think that is such a good question. and, And it's so prevalent. And the thing is, there are some women who will be like, this is about women and you know I've I've talked to guys who wanted to join feminist book clubs or feminist mm-hmm. clubs and and women wouldn't let them because they were like you're a man mm-hmm. okay that is categorically wrong okay patriarchy exists because we have cut out 50% of the population which is what men have done to us they've cut us out and we don't have a voice and that's why we have a patriarchy therefore we do not get equality by cutting out the other 50% of the of the population we need them. To get equality across the board, we need to get men on board. Simple as that. Um, we do need, you're right, we need men in this fight. Like, we need them to fight for us. We need them to understand that feminism and gender parity is not a woman's game. It is not a woman's fight. It is a humanity fight. It is an everyone fight. Um, and so I think the best thing and the little things that we can do is is have conversations with men in safe spaces. And when they come to you and they're unsure and they don't know, it is so easy to retaliate and snap out and want to be like, oh, you're one of the bad ones. Or because you don't understand, you're contributing to the problem. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's, I've done it before. And I, you know, and, I, and it, sometimes I have to be like, no, Salma, <laughs> swallow that. They are genuinely trying to understand. Help them. Mm-hmm. I can talk to them calmly. And yeah, you can be heated and debate it and tell them you're angry. Of course you can. But just keep having those conversations. Have them as many times as you need to until they get it. Because you might have to have that conversation with like your brother or a male cousin mm-hmm. 16 times before it clicks for yeah. him. And if you have to have it 16 times, have it 16 times. And it's exhausting. And sometimes you don't want to do it. And sometimes you're tired of educating men and mothering them and nurturing them and bringing them up. And sometimes you want to be like, get there yourself, right? Or read a book. Yeah, like we got there ourselves. You fucking get there yourself. And yes, that's the easy way. 
But the the sad truth of the matter is that this is an education piece. Mm -hmm. We do have to help them and educate them and bring them up and and kind of help them understand the struggles that we're facing Mm -hmm. and our perspectives. Because there are some things that as a man, they just will never see because it will Mm -hmm. never be on their radar. They will never feel the unsafeness of walking home alone with three guys behind them walking. They will never feel that, Mm -hmm. ever. So we do have to keep having those conversations and keep talking to them and saying, okay, but what about this and what about that? Just keep the narrative open. Yeah. I think it's also realizing that it's a long-term game for both of us. Right. For women and for men. Yeah. We're in this for the long haul. Like, we're not going to have one conversation Mm -hmm. with one man and it's going to be fixed. And it's not going to happen overnight. And I love that you said, you know, you might have to have a conversation 16 times because I've experienced that myself. Right. It's quite exhausting. But we need to have the patience and I don't want to be the type of person who's going to shun men Mm. out because I know so many men who have come to me and said, I want to understand. Yeah, exactly. And they have questions. Right. Just like we have questions, you know. And so it's like we got to team up and unify because it is a humanity fight, like you said. Absolutely. Just keep the conversations going. Mm -hmm. And what about for women in terms of because I'm a woman that I want to get more mm. more into like into this, the fight yeah yeah let's get in the trenches so do you have any advice or suggestions for women who want to be be more yeah show up more yeah so i think um i think it's again it's around that conversation piece and um for example like i always say that to women like call out the microaggressions like um, because microaggressions lead to macroaggressions, which lead to the fabric of our society. So it's tiny things. But like if anyone calls me girl, it drives me crazy. I'm like, and I'll always say time and time again, don't call me girl. I'm a woman. I'm a woman. I'm a woman. And they're like, oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But it's woman because I would never call you boy. I don't go around calling any man boy because I think it's disrespectful. They're not a boy. They're a grown-ass man, right? They've gone through puberty. They, you know, they're married. They're like, I would never call a guy boy unless I'm being intentionally disrespectful, right? right? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, boy, what are you doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm not using it as a compliment. So for you to keep calling me girl, why are you calling me girl? Like, I'm a grown-ass woman. Or like, even when guys, like my male friends talk to me and they're like, oh, so I'm seeing, and like, I went on a date with this girl and I'm like, woman. You went on a date with a woman. Mm. If you went on a date with a girl, I'd be worried. She's a woman, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they're like, oh, Salma, you know what I meant? Yeah, but it's woman. I know what you meant, but you keep calling us girl means that you are continuing to infantilize us and you're continuing to see us as some like, t- like girl in the corner. Mm-hmm. No, I'm a woman on equal standing with you. Give me the appropriate title. Um, so I think it's little things like that. And it's exhausting and it's tiring and you don't want to do it. Um, but I've done it in business meetings. I've done it. I've done it everywhere. Mm. Just keep calling it out. Keep calling out those little things so that you are broadening the conversation and you are making an awareness with me. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, taking girl out of my vocabulary has been something I've been focusing on. In yeah, the past too, because I do it as well. And yeah, women just do recently it. I've realized like, no, it doesn't sound right to me anymore. Right, exactly. And it's like a constant, like I just have to correct myself all the time yeah. because it's been a part of my vocabulary for so long so and I'm long. used to just using it like in conversation and just didn't mean nothing to me until now where yeah. I'm like, Mm. It is I have a, to be more intentional about the right. way I speak. Exactly, because so much of, of oppression is laced in the language. If 
you keep calling me girl, you're going to keep seeing me as girl. And that's, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is next for you? I know that you have a popping Instagram. And <laughs> you've also got a TED, TED Talk out, which is amazing. I encourage yeah. everyone to YouTube it. Salma Ewardani. Burkas and bikinis. Yeah. I absolutely love that speech. Yeah. So what's next? What's next? Um, so I'm working on my manuscript of my debut novel, which is also called Burkas and Bikinis. Um, and I'm working on that and hopefully getting it published this year. Um, hopefully working on doing more poetry shows um, at some point in the future, you know, a one woman show. So you can all come to my poetry show. Mm. Um, and yeah, they're the things that I'm really intentional about right now. Poetry, getting my novel out. And then once my novel is out, getting it into a sitcom and getting it on TV screens. That's where that's that's where I'm heading. Oh, my gosh. That's so exciting. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I cannot wait. Thanks, girl. So tell everyone where they can find you. I'm also going to put the links. Yes, you can find me on the gram like everyone else, obviously. <laughs> um, I'm on Instagram and it's just my full name. So it's Salma Elwadani. Um, you can find me on Twitter. It's written by Salma is my handle on Twitter. But I don't tweet that much because I fell in love with Instagram and cheated on Twitter with it. So <laughs> Instagram is where I hang out, which is where you will find me, where you can chat to me. Um, and then also my website has kind of like all my articles, my poetry, my spoken word performances, my Instagram links. So if you just go to www.salmaelwadani.com, there I am. Perfect. Thank you so much, Salma. Thanks for this having has been me. such an amazing conversation. And we're out. We out. Peace <laughs> out. Bye. Amazing. Oh my God, thank you. All right, people, that's a wrap. You've been listening to the Boss Ass Bitch Podcast. I'm your host, Marta Katanichu. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at MartyPants. That's M-A-R-T-Y-P-A-N-T-T-S. That's two T's in the pants, Marty Pants. Or you can find me on my writing account, which is Write Shit Down. Pretty plain and simple.